As Brother Roger mentioned near the close of our service this morning, we are having the intention of continuing our series in the study of Revelation this evening. We have advanced all the way to the 20th chapter of this noble and 66th book in the Holy Word of God. The curtain closed on inspiration when the book of Revelation was completed. And as you and I have the opportunity to study this majestic and grand finale, it is such that we are carried to the heights of victory and in fact the ecstasy awaiting those that are the faithful. Many times throughout this book, we've been led to appreciate the victory and triumph that awaits those that are in Jesus. And as we come to chapter 20, that idea shall also be set before us yet again. As you can see, the subtitle that I chose to use for this lesson is The Binding of Satan. And furthermore, as you can see, we shall only consider the first ten verses of this chapter, reserving the latter ones for our study next Lord's Day evening, for they carry us to the penultimate finality of all things, the marvelous and tremendous day of judgment. This evening, as we look into chapter 20, might I ask that you think with me about some of these introductory thoughts at the very outset. It is certainly no understatement, nor overstatement for that matter, to say that chapter 20 is the campground for many of the premier false doctrines that so often are presented in the world of religion today. Make no mistake, this is a powerful chapter that only heightens the tragedy associated with its misuse, with the fact that it so often is used to teach that which it does not teach and to affirm that which no, is nowhere to be found in it. That sadness is only heightened when it seems that so many are captivated by it and proceed to follow it without a firm appreciation of the things that are here, but also those things that are so noticeably absent. To note that very idea, might I suggest we note four things very quickly that the chapter does present. One is without question the binding of Satan. That, in fact, is the very first thing we shall study tonight. But apart from that, it does very clearly set forth the reign of those that are saints. Furthermore, following those two, there is the careful prescription of the destiny of Satan, followed by the great day of judgment. Tonight, we will only look at the first three of those basic sections, as we will come, in, in fact, in our study to chapter 10 only in the, in the first part of this chapter tonight. In looking at Revelation chapter 20, might I suggest that we, as we've often done, first make a note of verses 1, 2, and 3. And as we do that, I would ask that you read them with me. Revelation 20, verses 1 through 3. And I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years and cast him into the bottomless pit, and shut him up, and set a seal upon him, that he should deceive the nations no more, till the thousand years should be fulfilled, and after that he must be loosed a little season. Immediately again we are asked to picture or visualize something that John saw. No doubt as we look at this book and the usage of that verb saw so frequently appears, we are given a graphic image. And may we not forget that John, what you see, write in a book. Revelation 1 verse 11. One of the things that John saw was the very thing that we may proceed.
that picture is not going to appear. There was supposed to be an angel there having a key to the bottomless pit. And I think as once happened before in our study, the image just is not going to appear before us. If you can visualize a portion of that which we just read, we do see that John saw an angel. But it would seem that this angel was, of course, of great power, for we easily note that to him was given the key of the bottomless pit. Furthermore, we see that he also had a chain, a great chain in his hand, and with that, verse 2 informs us, he laid hold on a specific entity, namely the dragon. Not only laying hold upon him, but verse 2 reminds us that he bound him a thousand years, and as if that weren't enough, cast him into that bottomless pit, shut him up in it, and set a seal upon it. Finally, we notice that this particular thousand years is such that during that time he would deceive the nations no more. And finally, we note that near its conclusion, it would seem that there would be a releasing or he would be loosed from his prison. And after that, he must be loosed a little season, as verse number 3 concludes. We might well, though, proceed to return and look more interestingly at the observations to be seen in that section. We've seen what it says. What does it mean? What interpretation may be of such great benefit to us? Well, some of the things that we might see would be these. First, thousand years. No doubt that has already captivated your mind as we've read this. What is this period of a thousand years? First, might we assert that there are very many who would proclaim that this is a literal period of a thousand years, and as such, they yet look forward to a time when supposedly the Savior shall return, and he shall inaugurate a reign literally of a thousand years in Jerusalem, reigning on the throne of David, over which he will have absolute scepter and reign over the entirety of earth, which then shall be under a prosperous and beautiful reign of the Savior." Now, that is the teaching of very many. Does this teach that? Is this the thousand years that's described in this place? We shall see in a moment it's mentioned two more times in the chapter. At the very outset, could I ask you, though, to note two things very importantly with me? Again, let me ask you to notice, as I emphasize a few of the words in verses 1, 2, and 3. John saw an angel, verse 1. What's more, the angel had a key, verse 1. As we continue, this angel had a great chain, verse 1. In verse 2, the angel laid hold on the dragon, verse 2. What's more, bound him a thousand years, verse 2. Verse 3, cast this dragon into a bottomless pit, set a seal over it after having shut him up, and all that while might we carefully observe We've already identified who the dragon is in the book of Revelation. Chapter 12 absolutely and utterly clearly affirmed that the dragon is the devil. And in fact, verse 2 here says the same thing again. Without question, then we are talking about the serpent, that old devil, the dragon, and as such, this being is a spiritual one. Satan does not have flesh and bones the way we do. He is not a physical entity. But yet here he's bound with a chain. So was this a literal chain or a figurative one? Furthermore, he was cast into a bottomless pit. Is that literal or is that symbolic? It would seem the answers are rather self-evident. 
we know that one cannot bind a spiritual being with a physical chain. Furthermore, one cannot employ a key to open a particular space that has no bottom. All of these things are highly figurative, aren't they? Satan is a spiritual being, of course. This chain and this key are both spiritually to be observed and discerned. As we have already noted, this bottomless pit is again a symbolic thing. It's a figurative matter. And yet, are we to believe in the midst of all of this, which is obviously symbolic, the thousand years is literal? I don't think so. In fact, the testimony, the very passage, will not permit that kind of interpretation. In fact, as has often been the case, notice that this is another usage of a number. A number that has already been used symbolically more than once in the book of Revelation. Could the same thing be true here? Could it be that this number is representative of some dramatic and powerful and eternal truth, all the while symbolized and conveyed to us in language that is so well fit by the number 1,000? May I suggest we consider that if we do take this thousand years as literal, we immediately run aground because we understand that truth is absolutely harmonious. We cannot interpret any text in a way that contradicts other plain passages of the Holy Scriptures. All the while, that particular problem arises so keenly when we remember in Jeremiah 22, verse 30, the very closing verse of that chapter, that God, through the prophet Jeremiah, made a rather clear-cut and dramatic prophecy. The current king reigning on the, as king of Judah at the time was named Jeconiah. Quite often, at least in the book of Jeremiah, his name is shortened to Coniah. And such is the case in Jeremiah 22.30. On that occasion, God, through the prophet, said, Write this man childless, for never again shall one of his seed reign over Judah in Jerusalem. Now, that is a prophecy about as plainly as it could be stated. The children of Israel were shortly to enter the Babylonian captivity. And through the prophet Jeremiah, God said, Never again will one of this man's seed reign over Jerusalem in Judah. Never again shall it happen. All the while, though, as we close the Old Testament, looking at various other kings that did reign, we might notice that Zedekiah, in fact, was the last of the kings of Judah, but did he ever reign in Judah? He did not. He was placed on the throne by none other than the Babylonians, and he was carried off into Babylonian captivity. And on that occasion, and at that time, remember, his eyes were put out after he witnessed the putting to death of his sons. You see, God's prophecy thus prophesied that no seed, no literal descendant of Jeconiah, would ever reign again in Jerusalem. That picture becomes all the more interesting when we read Matthew 1, verse 12. For amongst the genealogy of none other than Jesus is Jeconiah. You see, our Savior descended through the lineage of Jeconiah, and hence, if Jesus ever were to reign in Jerusalem, reigning over Judah as well as the entire earth, then Jeremiah lied. The prophecy that Jeremiah uttered could not possibly have been true. You see, if we take that then at its face value, it is then impossible for the Savior to ever again reign, as so many think that He shall, reigning in Jerusalem over this utopian state. It simply is not to be. That is not the thrust of this thousand-year reign discussed in Revelation 20. Notice also with me, though, then 2 Peter 3, verse 10, we also notice something else. 
On the day of the Lord, something else shall transpire with regard to this planet. Namely, we read so amazingly that when the day of the Lord shall come as a thief in the night, the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth and all the works that are therein shall be burned up. May I suggest there will not even be a place in Judah and Jerusalem for the Savior to reign if we wished for it to happen. This earth shall be consumed in the greatest conflagration to be imagined. It all shall be consumed. You see, there shall not be a reign of Jesus in Jerusalem for a literal period of a thousand years. The meaning is obviously something else. As if those ideas were not enough, may we look at one other passage stated by the Apostle Paul himself. In 1 Corinthians 15, that great resurrection chapter of the New Testament, we remember that Jesus there is expressly stated to do something rather amazing on the time of his second coming. What is that thing? Those of the premillennial ideas would have us believe he's coming back to begin his reign. That isn't what Paul said. Paul said then, which is an adverb specifying time, then, when the Savior returns, he shall hand over the kingdom to God. He will terminate his reign then, not begin it. Thus we see everything is backward, it would seem, with respect to the belief that this thousand years is a literal time that Jesus will reign upon earth, for that is not the teaching. May we suggest, though, that it would be of interest to ask, what is the teaching? May we consider these ideas. Those usages of the word thousand that we've encountered before could well be of great aid to us yet again. In Revelation 7, as well as Revelation 14, we encountered this rather interesting number, 144000, We quickly learned even then that that number was not literal, and we proved it absolutely from the text of Revelation 7. And Revelation 14 harmonized well with that idea. That was representative of the number, regardless of the specific actual numerical value, but the number of those who were washed in the blood of the Lamb and who thus would be recipients of eternal salvation. It was obtained as twelve times twelve times a thousand. Absolute completeness. No one that should be there will be left out, and anyone who should not be there will be absent. When we saw that number also in Revelation 9, we saw then that the number was thousands times thousands representative again of the great army of those who would be on the side of the Lord. How different that was from those, though, that would be his enemies. This number 1,000 that we see then so powerfully in Revelation 20 is another great number respecting completeness, wholeness, entirety. And as such, the particular period of discussion should not be taken as literally an exact numerical value of a thousand years, but rather a period of wholeness and completeness with regard to whatever its object is. At this point, might we observe yet something else? What is conspicuously missing from Revelation 20? Those, again, who would like to think that this prescribes or looks forward to a literal period of a thousand years of Jesus' reign on earth, what is not here? We have seen at least the mention of a thousand years, but is there any mention of Jesus here? Is there any mention of Jerusalem? Is there any mention of Judah? Not in the slightest. 
Is there any mention of individuals who are still in bodily form? For that's what they lead us to believe. None of that is present. Isn't it a large stretch of the imagination then to read into this all these elements that are not there? You and I do great injustice, and so does anyone else who tries to read between the lines of the holy pages of God's Word. God meant what He said, and He said what He meant. Did not David exclaim of old in 2 Samuel 23, 2, The Spirit of the Lord spake by me, and His Word was in my tongue. We are not left at liberty to think that it was only God's thoughts or only God's mental prescriptions. David said His words are what I spoke. Thus, John spoke the words of God again here. All of these elements that seem so needful are not to be found anywhere in this chapter. In fact, there's no mention anywhere of Jerusalem, no mention anywhere of Judah, no mention anywhere of those in bodily form, no mention at all of Jesus anywhere in it. If we have seemingly discussed enough to lead us to know that the thousand years is not what we so often may well hear, let us look at some other things that may identify this thousand-year period for us. Note again the statements of what takes place. Satan bound a thousand years. That alone is a rather powerful clue, isn't it? For is there anywhere else in the pages of the Bible where the binding of Satan is discussed? For if it is, that could be an overwhelming commentary on the idea set before us here. We need to turn back to the Gospel accounts. Jesus, on more than one occasion, made reference to the limitation of the work and activity of Satan, and in fact, even said that he was to be bound. Let us revisit, then, some of the gospel accounts, in particular in Matthew 12, verse 29. Looking back to that far distant occasion when our Savior himself discussed these activities, note the wording on that occasion with me, if you would. Verse 29 of Matthew chapter 12. I shall begin reading in verse 28. But if I cast out devils by the Spirit of God, then how, or then the kingdom of God has come upon you? Or else how can one enter into a strong man's house and spoil his goods, except he first bind the strong man, and then he will spoil his house? Keeping that idea at least in mind, let's notice Mark's version of that. Mark chapter 3, verse 27. Again, I'll begin reading in verse 26. And if Satan rise up against himself and be divided, he cannot stand, but hath an end. No man can enter into a strong man's house and spoil his goods, except he will first bind the strong man, and then he will spoil his house. In addition, let us look at Luke chapter 11. In particular, verse number 21. Again, let us begin reading in verse 20. But if I, with the finger of God, cast out devils, no doubt the kingdom of God is come unto, upon you. When a strong man armed keepeth his palace, his goods are in peace. But when a stronger than he shall come upon him and overcome him, he taketh from him all his armor wherein he trusted, and divideth his spoils. In these three accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the Lord has very clearly drawn a beautiful comparison. He has obviously stated that which you and I can imagine. 
if one has intent to steal from a particularly strong man, you first must in some way restrict or limit the power of the strong man or else he'll beat you. He'll overwhelm you. He will not allow you to take his goods. And thus, in one, at one level, that's easy to appreciate. First, you must bind the strong man. Then you can take his goods from him. Who is the strong man in that passage? The previous context leads us to say this. They had accused Jesus of casting out devils by the power of Beelzebub. Beelzebub was the reference to Satan. In that context, thus, we see that they were accusing Christ of actually working or operating by the very power of the devil. And Jesus logically reasoned with them, that cannot be, for how could the devil cast out the devil? Surely he would never do that. Thus, he concludes, by the power of one stronger than the devil, I must be doing that which I do. And did you notice he said, one stronger than the strong man is here, clearly referring to himself. Jesus is stronger than the strong man, the devil. He thus bound and shackled him on that occasion and did so through the remainder of his era of preaching that gospel era and also, of course, the New Testament era that followed it. Isn't it interesting to see then this binding of the strong man is mentioned in some other passages, at least indirectly. In Hebrews 2 verse 14, we notice on that occasion the Hebrew writer Inasmuch as he said that the children also are partakers of flesh and blood, so too did he become, namely Jesus. But why? That he might destroy him that had the power of death. Jesus destroyed the devil that had the power of death. Thus, Jesus entered the house of the strong man, bound him, and spoiled his goods. Satan, you see, had the club of death in his hand all the way from creation, if you will, or when Adam and Eve partook of the forbidden fruit, all the way until the death of Jesus at Calvary. For you see, the club of death was in his hand, and Paul said so in Romans 5.12. However, Jesus entered the strong man's house and took the club of death from him. For all those who die in Jesus are such that they look forward not to a second death, but having been involved in the first resurrection to a glorious home forevermore. But what about 1 John 3, verse 8? Yet one more time, reference is made to the amazing work of Jesus. On that occasion, we see the following text as it's presented to us. He that committeth sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose was the Son of God manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Jesus entered the strong man's house, and he was stronger than the strong man, spoiled his goods, took the club of death from him and all the power that went with it. The very thing known as hell that he held over every person had been removed. Jesus is the very one who had the power and opportunity to bind that strong man. And might we notice that on more than one occasion, Jesus again hinted to that fact. He said, I beheld Satan falling from heaven in John chapters 8 and 12. On this occasion, it may be that we've said enough to lead us to see some observations that tie in with this might be in order. We've seen a bit then about that thousand years, representative of the time when Jesus entered this world and the gospel came to be preached. That's when that era began. That's when the devil first began to realize his days were numbered. For you see, he came to appreciate that a stronger than he was here. He tried his best to get Jesus to sin. 
He placed those three magnificent and strong temptations before him, but never did Jesus falter. It is written, it is written, it is written. Matthew chapter 4. You see, Jesus did not succumb to the temptations of Satan. One more time, as the scene of Calvary drew near, the anxiety and the agony that was upon our Savior, it would have been an opportune time to crack into sin, but Jesus never did. You see, he remained faithful and true even until the end, and finally they nailed him to his hands and to his feet. And Jesus was able to say in John 19, 30, It is finished. He had accomplished the mission for which he left heaven. He had accomplished the goal and objective for which he had come to this earth, John 6, verse 38. And in the finishing of that, he had destroyed once and forevermore the works of the devil. You see, you and I have an avenue stronger than he. No wonder Paul could say in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13, There hath no temptation taken you but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you're able, but also with a temptation will provide a way of escape. You see, Satan is not all-powerful. He's been shackled, bound, fettered, if you will. All the while... These observations lead us to see this. First, we've already noted a few of these in passing. The binding of the dragon. Again, the dragon's identified for us as the devil. That we're not left to wonder. Isn't it also interesting to see that in all of this, the will of heaven is that which is absolutely accomplished. Note again with me in verse 1, the angel came down from heaven. It was the will of God that this activity of the binding of Satan take place. This was not happenstance, nor was it accidental. It was the plan, the providence, and the power of Almighty God. You and I can see how blessed then it would be to appreciate the binding, the restriction, the constriction of Him. Note also the fact stated for us that Satan's strength is thus not unlimited. We just made note that we are not tempted above what we're able to bear, able to overcome, able to triumph over. We notice that as Satan, we may often think, has such great power and reign, here was an angel that caught him and bound him. That's what John saw. We've already seen Jesus testify so often of the same thing and of the same effect. Note the absolute nature of that restraint, verse 3. It's as though the Holy Spirit wished to make certain that we didn't miss that point. It's not just that he was caught. It's not just that he was cast into a bottomless pit. It's not just that a great chain was employed on him. It is said that cast into that pit, notice that the door, if you will, was shut on him, and what's more, it was sealed. We're accustomed to remember how sealing of tombs and other things was done as the stone that was rolled over the Savior's tomb and a Roman seal was put upon it. Matthew 27, verse 51 and following. On this occasion, it's as though the Holy Spirit wished to confirm for us there would be no escape. He could not wriggle his way out. He could not by some means manage to escape. It was full proof for escape during the time of this thousand years. What's more, might we remember that there is a rather troubling point, though, that's made near the end of verse 3. Till the thousand years should be fulfilled, and after that he must be loosed a little season. 
it would seem to be a frightful thought that there would be a time, sometime, a given time, when Satan would have a greater degree of influence. Not as though, if you will, that his power would per se be specifically larger due to the very blessing of God. That's beyond our belief. However, it does seem there's a time, an appropriate prophecy of a given interval during which his influence will be larger, during which that influence will be far more significant. I wonder what that might be. Perhaps the book of Hosea in the Old Testament will provide a clue for us. In Hosea chapter 4, verses 1 and 6, we notice there the heyday that was had by the enemies of God. And that heyday as it took forth and went forth was primarily due to the ignorance on the part of those for the will of God. Did not Hosea say, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge? It would seem that it may well be that here John, through prophecy, is making known the fact that at some point, perhaps near the time the Savior returns, there will be more ignorance of the Word of God, less appreciation for it. Perhaps the vast majority, as if it's not already a majority, then it may virtually be all, shall have no knowledge really of the Word of God. They will have begun to go their own ways, live by their own set of ethics and morality. God's Word shall not be in their thoughts. If that be what's described, it certainly can be understood. But oh, how we may thankfully say that it's only for a little season. It does not say that it shall be for a lengthy period of time. Again, though symbolic that might be, it nonetheless is easy to see that's for some protracted period of time. With verse 3 finished, though, John sees much more in this chapter. Would you note with me verses 4 through 6? And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus, and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands, as they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. But the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection." Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. After the binding of Satan is described in verses 1 to 3, we now see the reign of a particular class or group of individuals. Might we notice again that we still do not see Jesus in Jerusalem Though he's mentioned, it has nothing to do with a physical location in that ancient city. Some of the things here that John saw, he saw thrones, verse number 4. But not just thrones, there were some that were sitting upon them. Again, verse number 4. Those that he sat upon it were very interesting, for it was the very ones that had been beheaded for the cause of Christ. Isn't that an interesting scene? To see thrones and those sitting upon them in positions of jurisdiction had been beheaded. We again see a beautiful figurative kind of description. Notice also in verse 4, he additionally saw that not only these that had been beheaded, but these that had not the mark of the beast. These did not have upon them either in their hand or their forehead that mark of the beast that we had discussed in Revelation 13. Notice that they reigned with Christ 
a thousand years. Again, verse number 4. Isn't it amazing in verse 5 that the rest of the dead live not again till the thousand years were completed? And then the statement, this is the first resurrection. As we see so powerfully, this event is thus given a name. What John saw a name, the first resurrection. What might that be? First, might we make some observations about this setting? Considering these observations, the first one fairly to note is that the second death has no power over those subject to the first resurrection. That's to be found in that beautiful beatitude of verse number 6. There are seven beatitudes in this book, and this again is the next one that we have now visited. Might we also note some other concepts as well? We have encountered these souls before, and that again is rather dramatic in its meaning. We must go all the way back to chapter 6 when we first encountered them. In Revelation 6, in the course of the various occasions that we saw there as the horses of various colors proceeded on their way, under the heading of the fifth seal, we encountered these. John saw souls that had been headed for the cause of Christ underneath the altar. They were in despair. They were dejected. The cause for which they had died had not been vindicated. They were apparently overwhelmed. And they asked, How long, O Lord, shall the cause for which we died remain and not be victorious? You remember, though, that God said, There shall be later persecutions to come. You must be patient. Isn't it interesting, those same souls that were there underneath the altar are now sitting on thrones, reigning. They're not dejected anymore. They're not depressed and overwhelmed. They have understood that the vindication of their cause has happened, and that is the first resurrection. The cause for which they died has triumphed. It has, in fact, presented itself victorious and triumphant over the devil, for he's now been bound. Victory is seen yet again. Note also that we can see this scene takes us back so quickly to one of the things that Ezekiel the prophet saw in Ezekiel 37. It may be quick to say on the part of some that that simply seems unusual for a resurrection to be described in language like this. Though we should remember that symbolically that had also happened in Ezekiel 37. I believe we mentioned it in a Bible study class this morning. On that occasion, God looked, told Ezekiel, Ezekiel, what do you see? He saw a valley full of dry bones. Our bones are dried, our hope is lost. Ezekiel 37, verses 4 and following. Thus, that figuratively described the absolute end and death of the nation of Judah. Bones that are dried simply are such that their life has completely gone from them. However, God said, Ezekiel, look again. Now what do you see? He said, I see these bones arising, muscle and sinew are attached to them. It is now a great army standing. Those bones had revived. God said, Ezekiel, in that same way, my people shall return from captivity. And they shall again accomplish the work and mission for which I gave them. Here in Revelation 20, these souls that had looked so much in despair now are reigning with Jesus. They've been victorious and triumphant. The cause for which they died has been absolutely vindicated and they are now in position to reign, to consider the victory that's now theirs. To consider things like that maybe asks us, what does it mean to say that these are living and reigning with Jesus? 
For after all, isn't it true that only Jesus is the one that will say sit as judge and reign over that great empire? Not literally upon earth, of course. But isn't he the one that, say, for instance, reigns now over the church? Isn't he the head of the church? Absolutely. Colossians 1.18. Of course he is. That does not mean that you and I or that any other individual is given authority and delegated to that person the right to literally judge and condemn to hell or admit into heaven. That's not what that word means. It does mean, though, the same that Paul used it in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 2. For on that occasion, Paul made the very dramatic point that know ye not that ye shall judge the world. And he spoke that to saints in Corinth. In what way shall Christians judge the world? We judge by the fact of we are those abiding by the standard. And when others compare their conduct to ours, being that we're faithful unto God, we, in essence, can form a type of judgment by virtue of the example set and by the virtue of the life that we live through Christ. In 2 Corinthians 4.11, we are reminded that you and I are such that Christ's death is always seen in us. If we thus live faithfully to Him, others can very well then look and consider their life in comparison in terms of judgment, in terms of the right way, by looking upon that which the Bible teaches, which should be seen, of course, in us. That is what is meant on this occasion by this judgment. In 1 Peter 2, verse 5, we're reminded of the very scene of verse number 6 here. Priests of God. All of us, of course, serve in this era as priests of God. It is such that we can petition Him, go to Him in prayer. We need not, if you will, any other specific priest beneath Jesus as our high priest. To say these things is to, is to have aided us greatly through the first six verses of this chapter. Beginning in verse number 7, we're ready to read verses 7 through 10. What's the last thing, at least in the lesson tonight, that we shall consider that John saw? And when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison and shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. And they went, upon, they went up on the breadth of the earth and compassed the camp of the saints about in the beloved city, and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast of the false prophet are, and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. John made observation again, Satan loosed from his prison house. And in so doing, verse number 8, able again to deceive the nations. This, of course, was already mentioned near the close of verse 3. In this deception, though, we notice that very, very many shall be overcome by it. For it says in verse 8, the number of those deceived shall be as the sand of the sea. Again, we noted perhaps a very dramatic statement that as time rolls forward, shortly, perhaps before the time of the Savior's last advent, we shall see an increase or an increase in ignorance of the Word of God, where in fact so very many shall be deceived. In consideration of that point, notice verse number 9. We see in verses 9 and 10 that the overwhelming majority of us shall be persecuting those that are the faithful of God. That does give us great hope, though, doesn't it? There shall be God's faithful, even though they may be exceedingly few in number. And finally, in verse number 10, that devil 
that may seem so powerful and mighty will not have the upper hand perpetually. For note that he that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone. That final end that he knew would be his all along will now be reality for him. Jesus had said many, many years earlier that hell was prepared for the devil and his angels. And now we see the fullness of the Savior's prophecy. John now sees the devil cast into that lake of fire and brimstone. And might we notice that there is absolute no escape for in verse 10, tormented day and night forever and ever. When we often think about those sermons or texts that preach hell, fire, and brimstone, well, certainly this is one of them, isn't it? For it's so clearly and so powerfully written before us in the Word of God. There is another picture that if it shall display. And it did not. So I'm 0 for 3 on pictures tonight. I apologize for that, but it certainly didn't, just wasn't meant to be to see these few pictures. It was a fiery inferno is the way that it looks. And in it you see this dragon who in fact and pictured here as such falls freely into this place, this fiery inferno out of which there is no escape. To see that final point does lead us to these observations. It has to do with the ultimate fate of Satan. It is certainly the case that he has deceived so very many throughout the centuries, but his end is coming. It is absolutely certain, and of that there is no doubt. I chose to write some of these points for you to consider with me. It is a devastating thing to consider ignorance of the Word of God. In terms of that loosing for a little season, we over and again need to affirm for ourselves that the only means of remaining true and right with God and with hope of heaven is the application of the contents of this book. We cannot hope to attain it by accident, nor can we hope that God in His mercy will somehow overlook our failure to comply with His will. That shall not be. In fact, though it is a bit ahead of chapter 21, we shall shortly find that those who enter heaven are those who have made ready for it, those who are prepared and obedient and righteous, having been clothed with the righteousness of the saints. In this chapter, we see in verse number 8, one other re recollection to the book of Ezekiel. Gog and Magog, what does that mean? That takes us back to the primary reference in Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39. On that occasion, God, if we may briefly describe it, told Ezekiel, there shall be a tremendous, overwhelming battle between the forces of good on the one hand and the forces of evil on the other. Ezekiel, as you describe that battle, it'll have many things involved in it that are therein described, but let it be known this, my people shall be victorious. My people shall overwhelm and conquer the enemy. On that occasion here, we notice that that same text is used by John. He sees this great final battle where Satan is overcome as the same thing. God's people shall win. God's people shall be victorious. That leads us rather quickly to see that the destiny of Satan in verse 10 is so crystal clear. Isn't it interesting, though, that not only is the devil there, John said something else is also there. And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are. We had seen them cast into that place in Revelation 19, verses 19 and following. 
So what have we learned, at least in quick encapsulation of chapters 18 and following? Chapter 18, we saw the end of the beast. We notice that as, as such, he was overcome completely as Babylon's fall was described. In chapter 19, we saw the beautiful marriage supper of the Lamb where the faithful were prepared and ready. But at the end of that chapter, we notice that again, the end of the false prophet was therein described. In this chapter, we now see the dragon as well. None of the three have been able to overwhelm and overcome the forces of God. Jesus will triumph over each one, and in fact, on that final day of judgment that we shall see next Lord's Day evening, the absolute...